2: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public
1: Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to interview the co-founders of the great independent label Merge Records as they celebrate their 20th anniversary. Plus, we'll review the new albums from the Decemberists and Mastodon, and I'll pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
0: Money talks, but it can't sing and dance and it can walk. As long as I can have you here with me. That my travel be forever in Blue Jeans, Babe.
2: Greg, you and I have been talking about the proposed merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation to uh, create an unprecedented behemoth to basically control live music in America. Biggest story we've concluded that either of us have ever covered on this beat. Ethan Smith, who's been reporting on it for the Wall Street Journal, agrees. He had a heck of a scoop not long ago about the so-called secondary ticket market, better known as scalpers, and how artists and ticketmaster seem to be in collusion to be holding back tickets for scalpers. We wanted to have him on the show to talk to him about this story. Ethan,
1: welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks. Good to be here. We want to focus on this uh, story you wrote recently in the uh, the Wall Street Journal on uh, the way that the secondary ticket market has become a huge factor in the music industry. We've known this for decades. But an interesting twist in that artists now appear to be heavily involved in this and participants in uh, selling their own tickets mm-hmm. on the secondary market and benefiting from it, specifically Neil Diamond. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Basically... What we found last week was sort of a new corporate twist with a kind of veneer of corporate respectability on a a very old practice of managers and or artists selling their tickets through means other than the box office at prices higher than their listed prices. The instance here is this, this thing Ticketmaster has called Ticket Exchange, which, you know, big letters on the front of the website. It says, buy a ticket, sell a ticket. It's that simple. But as it turns out, they almost never list tickets that are posted for sale by fans. Almost all the tickets are put there by Ticketmaster itself with the participation of artists and their managers. So The example we have uh, in the lead of the story is Neil Diamond, who, when his tickets went on sale for for some Madison Square Garden shows last summer, the same instant that the tickets went on sale in the box office, Ticket Exchange had 160 seats listed for many times face value on what appeared to be a fan-to-fan marketplace. What Ticketmaster is not very transparent about is they also sell platinum, what they call platinum tickets there. And it turns out they pretty much only sell platinum tickets there, but they don't tell the consumer that.
2: In the old days, let's let's say a band like Spinal Tap, right, might take the first 25 rows of its concert, and uh, the manager might go outside with those tickets and sell them at 10 times the face value to make a little extra bucks for the band. That's what we're saying here, right? Right.
3: In the old days, what they would do is the artist hold back as it was as it was known would find its way into the f- figurative or literal back alley right, and right. the tickets would get sold for a, for an extra profit and so now there's this as a you know as, as I was saying they've kind of found this mechanism to add a little bit of a you know veneer of corporate respectability to the process but it's sort of the same thing
2: uh, and to, and to be clear ticketmaster is working with the artist to do this right
3: well it's a little more of a gray area than that because they actually print the price you pay on the ticket. So if you buy some ticket for $462.13 on ticket exchange and it's and it's one of these platinum tickets, which you can't tell whether, you know, looking at the listing, you have no idea whether it's a platinum ticket, it's a, you know, a primary sale with a with a higher price on it or some fan or or a scalper selling it through the site but if it so happens that you're getting one that's a that's what they call a platinum ticket then it shows up with the $416.13 that you paid printed on the ticket as the face value. So Ticketmaster would argue, "No, we're not scalping these tickets because we we're telling you what you paid for it and we're putting that right on right on the ticket very proudly." However, that's a little disingenuous because you as the consumer can't tell what the origin of the ticket is. And Irving Azoff, the CEO of Ticketmaster, says he is working to clarify the origins of the tickets on the service and, you know, I guess we'll we'll see what happens. And
1: and, and the artists are, are hiding behind this, it's, it appears to me. Like now that you've outed Neil Diamond as basically one of the artists who's doing this There would appear to be no real reason for them to continue doing it in this manner because in the past it would be like, oh, these are just tickets that ended up on these secondary sites. We really don't know how they got there. Now that it's out of the bag, why should this continue? I mean, the the transparency appears to be gone.
3: You know, uh, again, Ticketmaster says that they're going to make it a little bit more transparent where these tickets come from and that they will clearly identify the I hate to keep using their euphemistic term, but the, these platinum tickets, you know, these you know higher price tickets, and maybe they will. As for Neil Diamond, you know, I, I don't know what he thinks. I don't know what his manager, who happens to be Irving Azoff, told him about <laughs> about, about this arrangement. From what I gather, Diamond received a multi million dollar advance payment against these sort of pseudo secondary sales for that tour last year, and maybe he was just. Hey, you know, we found you a few million extra dollars without, you know, without a. I I don't know how involved he is in his in his business, and I, I think that really does vary from artist to artist. And it's a little unfortunate that Neil Diamond keeps coming up as Exhibit A here, because you could really take anybody. Mm -hmm. you know, literally almost any major artist and have this conversation about them. You know, he's no more culpable in this than Britney Spears or John Bon Jovi or Celine Dion or go down the list. There are a few exceptions like Bruce Springsteen, but for the most part, it's most big touring acts who, who do this one way or another.
1: You're saying that most arena level acts do this particular practice?
3: Most of them. As I said, I think it kind of varies from artist to artist how involved they really are in those business decisions and how careful they are about protecting their relationship with their fans and protecting their images and or how greedy <laughs> or have put another way how yes. greedy they are
2: we've been talking to ethan smith of the wall street journal ethan thanks so much for coming on the show
3: thanks for having me it was great you're listening to
1: sound opinions
2: That is What Do I from the North Carolina pop-punk band Superchunk. Greg, uh, Superchunk formed in 1989 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and became one of the most beloved indie rock bands throughout the 90s. This song was released on the Merge Records label in 1989. Superchunk guitarist and lead singer Mac McCown and bassist Laura Balance created Merge in 89 as a way to distribute their music and their friends from the whole Durham, Chapel Hill, North Carolina scene Then it's gone on from there.
1: Yes, from small beginnings, Jim, uh, 20 years later, Merge has become one of the top independent labels in the world, really, uh, releasing music by artists like Arcade Fire, Magnetic Fields, Destroyer, Neutral Milk Hotel, Spoon, Camera Obscura, the list goes on. Many, many great bands on that label over the years.
2: We recently visited Durham, North Carolina, and spoke with Mac McEwan and Laura Balance at WUNC's Durham Studios about the
1: two-decade history of Merge Records. Welcome to the show, folks.
4: Hi. Thank you.
1: It's great to have you here. And it's great to be in your neck of the woods. This is uh, this is where it, kind of where it all started. Take us back to 1989. This little label is just sort of a figment of your imagination at that point. <laughs> I'm wondering, uh, what was going on at that time where you thought, hey, this is a great idea, let's start our own label?
4: There were a lot of little bands coming and going. Mac and a couple other people in Raleigh had recently put together this box set called "Evil I Do Not To Not I Live," thus proving locally that it was possible to make a record, put it out, five records, five records, records. <laughs> yeah. These yeah. were
2: forty fives in a box,
4: yeah, yeah. Five 45s in a box, and you know, just have it in your hand, and it was real, and
1: kind of documenting your scene, your, yes, with the, the yeah. local bands. I'm fine about
0: So pay for what I feel for you inside
4: It was sort of disturbing how bands would exist. They'd you know, play around for a while, and that was sort of the end of the line.
5: Soon after that box set came out, all, none of those bands existed anymore. Really? And so going forward, it seemed like a cool idea to have a label that was kind of documenting things. I mean, both bands that we were in, but also our friends' bands, and and then even then it was on a really small scale, cassettes at first and 7 inches. And for whatever reason, you could actually sell these things. You could sell a thousand seven inches through stores like Pier Platter's and in New Jersey and similar places around the country that had you know loyal followings and people who read fanzines and found out about stuff through mm-hmm. college radio and that kind of thing. It's um, true.
2: I remember buying my first Super Chunk 7-inch at Pier Platter's from Bill Ryan. You know, uh-huh. like, you know, Bill would
1: mumble, <laughs> <laughs> North Carolina, you might like it. leg?" <laughs> <laughs> So, basically, you're documenting uh, your friends' bands uh, from the area. I mean, this is a huge, for people who aren't unfamiliar, I mean, there's like three major universities right in this area. North Carolina, North Carolina State, Duke, right? Yeah. A lot of young people in a very small area, basically. A lot of young people in bands, I would imagine. I mean, per capita, this has got to be... I would think back in 89, were there not a lot of bands around him? Sure. I
5: mean, I think, you know, there probably was in 79, too, you know. I I mean, I think it's kind of – it seems like a kind of a constant thing. And, you know, I don't think it's unique to Chapel Hill. I think there's a lot of similar situations around the country in college towns. But, you know, this is where we were, and uh, for whatever reason, it, it seemed to be especially happening.
1: What made you think this was a good idea? I mean, were there inspirations around uh, around the country? I mean, I know labels like Discord in D.C. and Touch and Go in Chicago. And Sub Pop was... Sub Pop was going strong, yeah. obviously.
5: Right, like the more punk rock like Discord and, and Touch and Go and Sub Pop, but also the little bit even more kind of handmade labels like Team Beat and K, I think mm-hmm. were definitely uh, an inspiration, as well as Amphetamine Reptile uh, in Minnesota. Oh, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Forgotten great indie, though, for a while there. It's enough work though to be in a band. You guys are in Chunk. You started to tour. I mean, that alone to try to build up a national following in the underground is a lot of work. But then to come home and to have to send out to put covers on forty fives and to be mailing out stuff and handling accounts—it's like really having two full-time jobs, neither of which pays.
4: It's true. It's true. We had—I, I, you know—we had to have other jobs hmm. for many years. <laughs> So it was like three jobs.
5: Um, but there's other. But you know, aside from the jobs, we actually were getting a paycheck from the two jobs that you mentioned: being in a band and putting records together. Didn't really seem like work. You know, that just seemed mm. like that's what you wanted to be doing anyway. So mm-hmm. the band was still a part-time, more of a part-time thing than it would soon become. Right. You know.
2: Once. Well, they- let's talk about that. How did things blow up? Because this is '89 when when Merge started going. Around about 92 uh, or so, you know, after the year the punk broke, everybody was getting this major label money thrown at them.
5: Yeah, I mean, we were putting out our own singles, but um, that's about all that we really had the capability of doing. And so when it came time to do actual albums, we signed to Matador. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, there was a lot of interest in bands like Superchunk and Teenage Fan Club, which is also a Matador, that signed to Geffen. And I mean, it was all kind of happening, but at the same time was kind of happening without us. I mean, like, we certainly had lunch with people and dinner with people and, and that kind of thing, but it was always a little bit like we kind of know and maybe even they kind of know that this isn't going to happen just in terms of what we wanted to do with ourselves.
1: You're talking about major labels courting your band. Yeah. And I mean, it seemed like everybody was getting signed. I mean, bands you would never thought would be on major labels, you know, the Melvins, the Jesus Lizard. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's seductive because, uh, you know, David Yao of the Jesus Lizard was telling me that He saw a a major label guy who took them out for dinner pay more for a a bottle of wine that night for dinner than he had paid for certain cars that he'd owned. (laughs) You know? (laughs) know? And it's like they're throwing wads of money at you. And it's obviously,
5: well. We definitely made records for less than some of those dinners cost. Yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, there was something in that exchange that did not sound. There
5: just wasn't a. There were no examples of it working out so great. Nirvana was different. Nirvana was Nirvana. And to see that as something other than kind of the exception to a lot of rules was like a weird idea, you know. I mean, a band like, I think one of our favorite bands, Red Cross, had signed to a major label pretty early on in that yeah. whole thing. And seeing how that went and and other bands like that, I don't know, it just never seemed like anything got better mm-hmm. after that happened. and And at the same time, Merge was growing, and so by the time... Superchunk was really at a point where people probably really would have wanted to sign us. We also had this thing that existed that we could do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Laura, what was the first point where you were
2: able to look at what you had built with Merge and realize, you know, we're making money now. we got a couple people working here. This has become a business. It's not just this labor of love.
4: Maybe it was when we actually were able to pay ourselves on top of paying other people. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't remember what year that was. It was, like, it was late, Maybe like 96. It was pretty mm. far into it before we felt comfortable enough to do that. Seven or eight years it was, in. Yeah. yeah, it was more like Superchunk would come home from tour and would loan Merge some money <laughs> 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 and get it back eventually. You know you're in bad shape when an indie rock band <laughs> is lending the indie <laughs> label money. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so Merge uh, made it through those crazy alternative years uh, without selling out. It's growing. You're able to start paying yourself. I remember uh, – One of the real signs of life, because it was really depressing after Alternative kind of bottomed out. And you were like, what's left? The indie underground has been raided by the major labels. And then I started hearing these bands from Athens, Georgia, this Elephant Six music. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the Neutral Milk Hotel records came out uh, on Merge, I was like, oh, this is what's next. Listen to this. This doesn't sound like anything I've heard. you began working with jeff mangum how special that music was
4: i think you know we felt like it was special but we had no idea that anyone else would care Mm. and that's a that's a weird thing about putting out records in general like there can be albums that you just think are the most genius bits of art that you've ever listened to and no one cares no Mm. one ever notices And it just falls by the wayside. Mm. But then, for some reason, a record is special in the right way that it it captures people's imaginations or, or, uh, you know, I don't know. They buy it (laughs) and, (laughs) and keep buying it. And that's the crazy thing about Neutral Milk Hotel. It's just continued to this day.
1: We're going to continue our look into merge records with co-founders Mac McCaughan and Laura Bounce in just a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And then later on we're going to review new albums by the Decembrists and modern heavy metal masters Mastodon.
2: back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We've been talking to Merge Records co-founders Laura Balance and Mac McCann about the uh, revered indie label's 20-year history. This is a song from Magnetic Field's box set 69 Love Songs, another Merge release, one of their best sellers, and one of the most inventive recordings, I'd say, of the last 20 years. Merge has quite a few of those on their roster. They've really accomplished a lot artistically, and we wanted to ask them, how did they find these acts, to determine who to sign to the label? When you sign an act, what are you looking for?
4: It's hard when you're listening to a record just to go like, do we want to put this out? The first Mm. time you hear it, you you can't tell. It takes me a long time before Mm. I get to a point with a record where I can tell what it really is. And I think this actually causes us a lot of trouble (laughs) because sometimes it takes us so long to get to a point of getting back to a band and going, yes, we want to put out your record that they're they've. They've given up on us. They've sort of, moved like, on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, I, don't, I don't know. It, it has to have an immediacy, but also you can't get sick of it. Yeah, I
5: think that when you listen to a record enough times, you can kind of tell whether this is something that you want to live with, you know what I mean, or it's something that, like, oh, I enjoyed it. We get a lot of records that we do not put out that are really good records. I guess to answer your question, it has to be a record that we love. And if a band is a great live band, that helps. Though I mean, we put out records by people who never play live, so that's it's not always a... A necessary part of it um, and in terms of being people that that we like I mean in some ways it's a kind of a self-selecting thing that we've created because people know that if they're on Merge like we're not gonna act like a major label we're not mm-hmm. gonna throw a ton of money at something and you kind of have to be down with that program to even want to be on Merge in the first place so it's like we end up I feel like the relationships are important but also like we end up working with a lot of bands that want to work with us and so we, I feel like we, we share a certain aesthetic or a certain approach to music,
2: mm. you know. That's a couple of hundred words from both of you, and never once did you mention, he's like, well, we think this will sell.
5: <laughs> oh,
4: no, we, we, we're repelled by things that will sell.
2: <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other signings. Uh, Lamb Chop has been on the label a long time. New record coming out. And when, when did the first record on Merge come out? It's, like at least 94, I think, right?
5: Something 15 ago. years ago, right? Really? Yeah, at least at least way that way long that? ago. I brought a
4: cheat sheet because sometimes <laughs> I can't remember the went I went, I went to
5: uh, school with Jonathan Marks, who mm-hmm. was in Lamb Chop, and when I graduated, I remember he called me or sent me a tape or something and said, like, hey, I'm sending you a tape of this band that I'm in. We're called Poster Child." It's like a country band, and I play clarinet, and I just remember thinking, like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to hear this, you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, and that ended up, they ended up changing their name to Lamb Chop, and we've been putting out their records ever since, and they're one of my favorite bands ever, you know, what, did you find out the... 94, you nailed yeah, it. you got it, you did your research.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's an amazing run, I mean, I think every record they've put out, basically, has been a merge record, and um, Kurt Wagner, the... I guess you could call him the auteur of the band, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and every time you see him, it's in a different incarnation, different group of players around him, uh, different sound. One record I remember him making uh, was very much in the spirit of of that country soul stuff that Ray Charles was doing. Nixon, big orchestrations, yeah, Yeah. beautiful stuff. obviously something of that weird amalgam that you were talking about like how do i get my head around this music made you want to put this record out i mean what what ultimately decides that it's just like this is so wonderful and so weird and nobody will ever buy it but god knows we got to put this out <laughs> is that sort of how it works
5: yeah i mean I, I think that with someone like kurt he's an artist you know and he's do and he used to be a painter and he started painting again recently i think but i think I, i've read interviews where he said at some point the music kind of, like, took over from the painting as, like, what he's doing. You know, we love working with people that that's what they think about. You know, that's what they're doing. They're doing music.
1: Laura, what what's your impression of of somebody like that? I mean, it seems like you, the label is most celebrated for working with these um, personalities that probably never would have had a chance on a major. I mean, there's no way that Interscope would have put out a 10 Lamb Chop records.
4: Well, not 10. <laughs> Maybe they would have done two. <laughs> Their dedication to their art, I think, and their dedication to it means also they have the patience to work with us and deal with our idiosyncrasies and our, you know, it's a mutual relationship.
1: But in the traditional role of A&R, you know, a talent scout, person who signs a band you know, they'll be working with the band as they're working on their music and giving them feedback about, hey, maybe you want to try this or maybe that producer or that. Do you guys ever do any any of that sort of hands-on not, critiquing?
4: M- not really. I think that's one of the big differences between Merge and, and Major Labels is we do not enter into that process. That's that is a weird their, idea. <laughs> it is
5: their mm. job. It's their art. And, you know, there are bands. Certainly there's bands that ask for input that say, like, you know, we're tired of recording at home. Like, who should we work with? And, you know, we'll toss out names and talk about stuff if someone wants to talk about stuff, because we certainly have experience. But, you know, we sign people because we like what they're doing. We don't sign them because we envision some combination of our ideas with what they're doing.
2: Although realities do come into it. We were talking to uh, three-fifths or three-sevenths or whatever it was of Arcade Fire, when Neon Bible was coming out. And they were saying, for people who don't know the story, Funeral, the debut by by Arcade Fire, comes out on Merge. And it was literally, it got to a point where that that was finally the first album you ever had on the Billboard Top Albums list. And it's selling so fast, you were actually having trouble manufacturing enough to get to the stores, right? Yeah.
4: Our predictions were that it was going to do 4,000.
2: And it wound up doing like 40,000 in no time at all. Yeah. In like a day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: But it was interesting because here's this band out of Montreal that literally nobody outside of Canada really knew about until they signed to your label. I, mean, I don't know,
5: though. I mean, we... there was a
1: little bit of a buzz, but I, not I... huge. But I
5: think it's a great example of what I, I feel like has a lot to do with why a lot of these small labels have done well over the years, which is that independent la- labels have never been able to rely on just spending money to make something happen or sheer will in the marketplace or something like that, controlling the press that, that anyone's going to get for a certain record. It's always just been about, like, a certain community of people that all, like, want to make something happen, like bands working with labels, labels working with other labels, et cetera, et cetera. And over the years, you know, Superchunk touring a lot, meeting a lot of different people, I think kind of expanded the community that we're working in. Mm. Howard Billerman, who produced Funeral and played drums at the band for a while at the beginning, was someone that we met when Superchunk was on tour in 1992. Mm. In Canada, came to our show, bought a record from Laura. And so these little ties happen. And then, you know, 15 years later, he sends like a a CD and says, like, hey, here's this band. I'm playing drums. If you don't like it, it's not a big deal, it's not my van, I'm just playing drums. You know, <laughs> like, kind of downplayed the whole thing. But it's Howard, and, and you know him. Yeah. Because right now,
2: Laura, I bet there's what, 300 records on your desk? There's, yeah, there's meaning a few. To there's get quite to a few, yes.
4: Right. And they, they can sit there for six months.
2: What does it mean to you guys uh, to be an indie label still today? Because the, the the ground has changed so much from when you started. Uh, you know, where Lily Allen can put a couple of songs on MySpace and have her first record take off basically entirely digitally, you know, where Radiohead can, can do the famous experiment they did last year. What does it still mean to say, if you're a young band, my record's coming out on Merge versus I'm just going to do this myself?
5: I don't know. I mean, I guess to me it means like, you know, like I said, like you're part of a community and you're, you know, you have people working for you, meaning us and everyone who works at Merge, you know, they love your your record and are going to work hard for you because it's... As possible as it is to put out your own record, it's also a lot of work that if you're also going to be touring and want to actually make music, then maybe you don't want to do all the other stuff that goes with it. You know know what I mean? And I mean the Radiohead, Radiohead thing is, again, it's a little bit of... Like saying, like, look what the biggest band in the world can do. Yeah, <laughs> like right, you know, right, not right, everyone, right. not everyone can can do that, right. right? You know.
2: Well, I just wanted to hear you guys say it. I mean, still to this day, Greg. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You know, when when I get a pe- package from Quarterstick or Touch and Go or Merge, I'm always going to listen to it because the track record is such that you you know not not that I like all your yeah, records no. I have panned several of your records but you know it's like the track record is such that like these guys are right like 8 out of
1: 10 you know and, yeah.
2: I mean you can't say that
1: about Interscope or Sony or BMG or. You well know. And, and speaking of bands on major labels let's finish off with Spoon
0: don't say a word the last one still stinging back on my mind Bad for bring No way back from this Everything hits so once What we need is just what we want.
1: This is a band that had been on a major label for a number of years, had had their shot at a major label, and then got dropped. What happened in that case? Obviously, this band has gone on to do tremendous things on Merge, including uh, I think their last record debuted in the top ten of the Billboard charts, which must have been a shock to all involved. What was it about them that made you think, hey, this is a great idea to sign this band at this point?
5: Hearing the record. Yeah, I mean, we got to hear Girls Can Tell, you know. Mm -hmm. And that was a band that... I mean, you're talking about a band that had only made two albums. I mean, and the second album was Series of Sneaks was even much better than the first album. So you start to think like, well, this, you know, why would you assume this band is done making good music? And then we actually got to hear Girls Can Tell. A couple different people sent it to us. You know, it's an amazing record, and sounds it sounds like them, but it sounds pretty radically different from their first two records. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, whoa, you know, that's Mm -hmm. really something.
4: When I first heard it, I almost I was my first reaction was like, this is too catchy. It can't be on Merge. (laughs) It sounds too (laughs) much like it could be popular. Sounds like it could (laughs) sell. (laughs) Run away!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, were you familiar with the band at that point?
4: Sure.
5: Mm-hmm. Familiar with the band and um, had seen them sometime on the series of sneaks Tour they played in Chapel Hill <laughs> at a Mexican restaurant called the Lizard and Snake, and then their booking agent and a couple, like I said, a couple different people were like, you know, Spoon has made this other record, like you have to hear this thing, mm-hmm. and sent us stuff to hear, and I'm just feel like we're lucky to be in the right place at the right time, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you've got this amazing roster, uh, you've had these incredible success stories with Arcade Fire and Spoon in particular in recent years. And yet there's a scenario of the looming you know, downloading crisis <laughs> that's affecting all labels. Would you advise somebody to get into the record label business at this point? Um, mm,
5: no. No. It depends on what you're going to put out. But, you know, this is a point where everything is still so much in flux. I don't think that anyone can say, like, well, this is what's going to be the thing that, like, saves us or that saves the music business or whatever. It's like I think we always have kind of operated at some fringe of the music business Mm. quote unquote anyway not to say that we won't be affected by all the stuff that's happening but at the same time it doesn't seem like it helps to panic you know I mean if we just keep putting out good records that's kind of all we can do you know?
4: and use our best judgment and use some caution which is how we've always operated Yeah, mm. that that's be my that role <laughs> you're the caution. voice of
1: caution and reason
2: <laughs> it's been a pleasure having having you the voice of caution and the voice of uh, frivolity over here Mac and, and Laura thank you for coming on Sound Opinions guys thank
0: Thanks. you I can-
1: comment on the show, call our hotline 888-859-1800 Jim and I will be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our reviews of new albums by the Decembrists and Mastodon and then Jim's Desert Island Jukebox Pick
2: back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a piece of music called The Rakes Song by the Decemberists from their new album, The Hazards of Love. Greg, if you recall, when we had Colin Malloy on last with the band The Decemberists, he was also a guest on Sound Opinions as a solo artist, he was kind of avoiding the word concept album in reference to the group's 2006 record, The Crane's Wife. Mm-hmm. Although there were a couple of songs that were linked conceptually based on a Japanese folktale, now he's not apologizing. The new record, the fifth album by this Portland chamber pop band, is a no-apologies-beginning-to-end-all-one-piece-of-music-linked-together concept album. And a strange concept it is. It's about a a woman named Margaret who uh, is hassled by a demonic animal. There's a forest queen. There's a villainous rake. And all she wants to do is enjoy true love with her beau, William. The songs flow together, and there are different guests who come in to give voice to the different characters, including Robin Hitchcock Becky Stark of Lavender Diamond Jim James of My Morning Jacket and Shara Worden of My Brightest Diamond The uh, Decemberists have been building in popularity I think second only to the Arcade Fire as the next possible big arena breakout band from the indie rock world The Crane's Wife in 2006 sold almost 300,000 copies at this date and in 2007, the band toured America playing uh, in particular symphonic amphitheaters with local symphony orchestras. Really cool setting. We saw them here with the Grand Park Symphony. What are they giving us on this new album, The Hazards of Love? Let's play a track and then we'll come back and review it and rate it on our Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. This is a song, a piece of the greater whole called The Wanting Comes in Waves on Sound Opinions.
1: That's the wanting comes in waves on Sound Opinions from the December's new album, The Hazards of Love. Jim, as you said, their most ambitious album, no doubt to date. And that's really saying something. I mean, uh, Colin Malloy has tackled the 18-minute single in The Tane in 2004. (laughs) And and he messed around with with a bit of a suite on the last album, The Crane's Wife. Now he's gone whole hog with 17 interlinking songs. You know... Colin loves to throw those $10 words around. He's going back to some old English vocabulary that you might see in a Shakespeare play. What he's really referencing, I think, is a lot of 60s British folk. He's a huge fan of that era of music when those English folk artists like Ann Briggs and Fairport Convention, Sandy Denny, Richard Thompson, etc., were referencing 18th, 17th century ballads and bringing that tradition up to date. In fact, he's named the album after an EP put out by the UK singer Anne Briggs in 1966, The Hazards of Love. If you want to figure out exactly what's going on here, you can. You can spend a lot of time parsing the lyric sheet. What really excites me about this record, though, is the fact that on The Crane's Wife in 2006, The Decembrists really became a band, I think. It wasn't just Colin Malloy and his songs and a bunch of backing musicians. It was a band that rocked very hard. And on this record, I give the Secret Weapon Award to Jenny Conley, Mm. who rocks that Hammond B3 organ like she's in deep purple Uh, on that song, The Queen's Rebuke. There are some heavy-duty songs out here. They're they're approaching hard rock, and in fact, Malloy has mentioned heavy metal a few times in talking about this record. That level of intensity, they've never rocked this hard. So even if you don't quite buy the concept that Malloy is putting out here, these 17 songs telling this narrative of of mayhem and the toxic consequences of love, you can get into the music because I think the music's great. I think the Decemberists have never sounded better. I give it a buy it on the buy it, burn it trash it scale.
2: Oh absolutely. This is a very enthusiastic buy it. I love this album to pieces. The only problem I have with the Decembrists, Greg, is that in constantly dropping names like Nick Jones and Shirley Collins and Ann Briggs, they are denying their true influence. Mm. The hazards of love (laughs) is, in fact, the best album of this ilk since Thick as a Brick by oh Jethro God. Tull you know, you know, in why 1972. Did, why didn't I know
1: Jethro Tull was going to
2: come up? It's absolutely true. You're Jeth- ruining it for me. See, Jethro Tull took Fairport Convention and added metal guitar and uh-huh. silliness. The Decemberists, no that we know how silly some of this this folklore and then talking about the rake the evil rake and the forest (laughs) queen but they're laughing with us and it's all good fun all of it would be obnoxious if the songs weren't so great but they are incredible the analog synthesizers the metal guitar this is like the best band in the world at the right place (laughs) and the right time double buy it from sound opinions
1: That is Mastodon with a song called Divinations from their fourth studio album, Crack the Sky. Remember the E at the end of sky. Very important here. (laughs) And Atlanta Quartet, they have been around a bit on their previous albums. They've tackled big subjects, Moby Dick and, and the vast ocean waters on Leviathan in 2004. An album about the earth and uh, overcoming great obstacles on Blood Mountain in 2006. And now they move to the heavens, Crack the Sky, in 2009. This is an album, yes, we we just talked about the Decemberist ambitions, concept albums. Mastodon has been doing that all along. And for that reason, I think they have moved into the prime slot in terms of heavy metal band most likely to cross over into the mainstream. They're right in that top shelf with bands like Tool and System of a Down and Opeth who are doing vast conceptual work that is crossing over in a big mainstream way. They're getting a big push from their label, Reprise Records, to cross over into that commercial sphere. The big question in the fans' minds is, are they going to sell out to do it? Are they going to somehow water down the great music that they have made, the great progressive metal music that they have made in past albums, in order to do that? Jim and I will be back in a second to review the record, but first let's hear a track from Crack the Sky. Here's Oblivion on Sound Opinions.
2: That is Mastodon with Oblivion from the new Crack the Sky album here on Sound Opinions. You know, Greg, you mentioned the prog metal or progressive metal genre. My problem with that uh, subgenre, and metal loves its subgenres, is that often the music has been too complex or progressive for its own good, skimping on the great bottom of metal. Mm -hmm. And at other times, you know, it's rocked righteously with a thunderous metal assault, but it hasn't been very inventive or progressive at all. Mastodon gets it exactly right. This is a wildly inventive band that never sacrifices the bottom, and it does so with a lot of imagination. Man, the story here is out of some... Graphic novel weirdness: A crippled young man projects himself into an alternate universe, and he meets up with Rasputin. Uh, <laughs> and and I get lost there. But again, like the Decemberists, the drummer of Mastodon, Brand Taylor, told Billboard, you know, really, the story. It, it's all personal metaphors, really. At the end of the day, and and it really doesn't matter because. It rocks righteously Can't mm-hmm. say that often enough There's a new melodicism in the vocal attack There's a new precision and focus That Brendan O'Brien uh, of Pearl Jam fame And Rage Against the Machine and, and lately been producing Bruce Springsteen He makes everything sound just about as good As rock instruments can sound It all keeps moving It does so with a lot of melody And on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale Crack the Sky is definitely a buy it
1: well, I agree with you, Jim, and I think one of the reasons I do is I think there's an emotional resonance behind these sci-fi lyrics. Um, you know, the suicide of drummer Brand Daler's sister, she was named Sky, and, and in part the record is named after her. Also, there was a, a, a near-death experience for uh, the guitarist Brent Hines in 2007. Yeah. He got in a fight, fractured skull, uh, was in the hospital for months. You can hear these intimations of mortality, and I think this is a record... About death and transcending death and about facing your mortality more so than than any of this sci fi subtext that 's going on here, okay, Rasputin is one thing, but when you 're talking about the suicide of your sister when she was fourteen, mm-hmm. that adds a whole nother layer of emotion to this record. I, can, I think you can hear it, and I think you made a good point. I love the fact that a the vocals are much more emotionally direct. There's less of that screaming and guttural kind of pronouncements that you hear in a lot of metal bands where you think, well, what is this guy? It sounds like the Cookie Monster or something like that. You think about human beings singing this. There's great harmonies on this record. Maybe O'Brien did that. I'm not a huge fan of O'Brien's productions for Springsteen, but if he brought that into Mastodon here, I think he did it in a very profound and moving way. Well,
2: Mastodon's such a better band than Springsteen.
1: <laughs> I will not agree with you there, but I will say this, that they have bridged the gap between those hardcore metal roots and the fact that they have made a, one of the most melodic metal albums that you could possibly want to hear in 2009. Uh, buy it record all the way for me as well, Jim. I tell you, little buddy, this
0: whole island is bewitched. Just the cast away Island lost at sea oh, no, I'm standing my own Standing far from home oh, Remember, we were shipwrecked together.
1: As often as we can on this show, we like to take a trip to the desert island and pick up track that we cannot live without, and this week it is Jim Dirigatis' turn. Thank you, Greg.
2: You know, over the weekend, I was watching public television, one of those endless uh, documentaries on the summer of 68. I hadn't caught this one before, and they were showing those horrible riots in Grant Park in Chicago during the Democratic Convention in 68. I've seen that footage a million times, but this time it really registered in a very profound way because they had set it against the song that I'm going to play Heaven Help Us All, 1970 single by Stevie Wonder. Incredible song, not one that he wrote. It was a soul single written by Ron Miller, first covered by Wonder. It's gone on to have a long life uh, in the hands of other artists. Ray Charles did it, Gladys Knight, Joan Baez. But boy, looking at that turmoil from Chicago and Mm -hmm. and hearing it against this wonderful piece of gospel inspiration, basically a prayer in the hands of wonder, I'll tell you why I'm thinking about this. We haven't talked about this in the news segment of Sound Opinions because uh, it's very much a local story. But in addition to the big Live Nation Ticketmaster merger, the other story we've been covering at the papers is this proposal in Chicago to pass an ordinance that uh, all the musical advocacy groups in Chicago say would, would kill the bottom. 20% of the music industry in Chicago by forcing concert promoters to get these expensive licenses and all these insurance requirements, even if they're working at insured venues, really kill the DIY promoters who do Goth Night or Ska Night or Metal Night, who do VFW halls with up-and-coming punk bands you know and it seems to me that our current mayor daly who's been mayor approximately forever is very much like that image that i just saw on this documentary of his father screaming and yelling basically saying i am the law in chicago <laughs> you know sound opinions is aired in seattle and in austin and and we have people who podcast in other great music cities like new orleans and and new york and all of those cities have offices that are set up to encourage the local music scene. And Chicago, despite having this incredible music scene, it constantly seems as if it's under assault. And I don't know, something about seeing the first Mayor daily set against this song by the great Stevie Wonder as a prayer. Please, heaven, help us all. Make things better here. Just registered with me and I said, that's my Desert Island jukebox this week. The great Stevie Wonder. Heaven help us all on Sound Opinions. Heaven help
0: the child Heaven help the girl who walks the streets alone Heaven help the roses if the bombs begin to fall Heaven help help the black man if he struggles one more day Heaven help the white man if he turns All
2: That's Heaven Help Us All by Stevie Wonder. Greg, what do we have on the show next week?
1: Next week, we have another great show for you. We are going to spend the next week in what we hope will be lovely Austin, Texas. And it usually is lovely this time of year for the South by Southwest Music Conference. And we're going to come back with a bunch of bands you need to hear.
2: As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. Thank you, too, to WUNC in North Carolina for uh, helping us tape the Merge interview. And, of course, our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia, our own personal Rasputin. On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say.
0: I'm in the phone with no one Messages. Hi, this is Corby from Carborough, North Carolina. I'm a long-time listener, but recently I've been just, you know, perusing the um, backlog. And um, I can't find
3: one of my favorite genres in there. Um, instrumental music, you know, sometimes called post rock, post-metal, I feel like is um, very valuable to, you know, just what's currently going on musically and with the popularity of Mogwai and um, bands like Explosions of the Sky seems so huge right now i don't know i'd like to hear a little more
2: about them and i was just seeing if i could challenge you guys maybe to have an entire show without without vocalists so again thank you
3: great show and um thanks keep up the good work Hi, guys. This is Matt in Washington, D.C. So I've to your show last week, uh, we dissected Astral Weeks, and I have to say thanks for that, guys. Uh, A few years ago, I got the album on the recommendation of uh, the Rolling Stones 500 Greatest Albums list. I tried to listen to as many of them as I could, and I didn't get the album. But then, after listening to you guys dissect it now, I I sat back the other day as I was going to sleep, just closed my eyes in the dark room, and listen to the album just flow over me. And suddenly, suddenly it made a lot of sense. Suddenly I figured out what he was trying to do. And while I still won't say it's my favorite album of all time, it's definitely one that I can definitely appreciate now. So thanks, guys. Keep the good work, and uh, keep on rocking. On
0: the way you're doing If I keep loving
3: you, my life will be Hey guys, this is uh, Anthony Potenzo calling from uh, Streeterville. Shout out to Greg regarding James Brown. Get it together, probably one of the greatest cuts ever. I also have that box when I used to DJ back in the early 90s, China Club and whatnot. If Anything was slowing down, i bust out that box and things would happen. But that particular song I must have played to a million people made them sit and listen on how James creates the funk. It's like you're there. I, it, I couldn't have picked a better cut myself. Good going, Greg. And uh, Jim, quit listening to you after you dissed Tom Waits. Some bad things to say, so I can't really take anything to say with uh, many grains of salt. Greg, keep up
0: the good work, buddy. Thanks, guys. But you, you were just jiving. You wanted to feel dragged. You dropped out of school before you got it down. You hear me? You dropped out of school before you got it down. Now you ain't him. You're the biggest fool in town.
4: Hey, good morning, guys. This is Lee from Durango, Colorado. Gotta thank you for saving me from the new Chris Cornell album. That was the worst thing I've ever heard. And when I say that I wake up with sound opinions every Saturday morning, nothing like getting out of bed with the dry heaves after listening to Chris Cornell trying to hip-hop along with Timberland Layers of Crap. Once again, amen, brothers. Let's all get together to burn the new Chris Cornell CD. Thanks, you
5: guys. Rock on. No
4: more messages.
1: To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.